ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. You're listening to Breakdown, an exclusive podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. For more information, including photos, court records, and video, go to AJC.com slash news slash breakdown. Also, please join our Breakdown Facebook group to meet our reporters and ask questions about our story. Previously on Breakdown. The problem with prior bad acts, as, as the response of the state shows and what the case law shows, is that you're really bringing the character of the victim into, into play in the case, which is generally irrelevant. If they feel that he is behaving that way, or if the judge feels he might be behaving that way, or even more appropriately, could be behaving in that way due to the mental illness and that his aggression or his behavior is a result of that mental illness, it is acutely relevant to the jury's determination of self-defense. It, it appears to underscore the other tragedy of this case is that we have a young man who has got a serious mental illness, who was on probation with a caring probation officer, who has a mother who loves him and was doing what she appeared to be, what she could do to help him. And here he's gotten an evaluation. It's being recommended that he takes medication, but he's not taking his medication. And he's really not getting the help he needs to deal with this mental illness, which leaves him to his own devices and leaves him to be a victim of his mental illness as well. And that's another tragedy of this case, apart from his death. Welcome back to Breakdown. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. As always, I'm joined by my colleague, Asia Burns, a breaking news reporter for the AJC. This season, we're covering the February 23, 2020 fatal shooting of Ahmad Arbery just outside of coastal Brunswick. So much has happened since our last episode, it's hard to know where to begin. We have a federal hate crimes indictment, we've had a revealing two-day pre-trial hearing, and we finally have a trial date. Travis McMichael, his father Greg McMichael, and Roddy Bryan are now scheduled to stand trial on the state murder charges on October 18th. The trial should last about a month. But let's begin outside of a courthouse. Our first stop will be under the Gold Dome, 
the name for Georgia's state capital because its dome is gilded with layers of gold leaf. Greg, Travis, and Roddy have claimed that they were making a lawful citizen's arrest when they hopped in their pickup trucks and chased a mod down a street in the Satilla Shores neighborhood. Since you last heard from us, the law permitting a citizen's arrest is no longer on the books. This happened on May 10th, the day after Mother's Day, and two days after what would have been Ahmad's 27th birthday. At the state capitol, Governor Brian Kemp, with Ahmad's mother, Wanda Jones, at his side, signed legislation overturning the citizen's arrest law. Kemp gave Jones one of the pens he used to sign the bill. Today we are replacing a Civil War era law right for abuse with language that balances the sacred right to self-defense of a person and property with our shared responsibility to root out injustice and set our state on a better path forward. The citizen's arrest overhaul is the second piece of criminal justice legislation to become Georgia law since Ahmad's death. Last year, the legislature enacted a new state hate crimes law. On April 28th, a federal grand jury handed up an indictment against the three defendants. We told you earlier the Justice Department was investigating possible hate crimes. This started during the Trump administration, but the decision to indict was made just a few months after President Biden took office. The indictment accuses Greg and Travis with one federal hate crimes count. It alleges they use force or threat of force against Ahmad because he was black and while he was running on a public street in Satilla Shores. It also says they used dangerous weapons, Greg's 357 Magnum revolver and Travis's Remington shotgun, and it says their attempt to kidnap Ahmad resulted in his death. A similar count was filed against Roddy. It alleges he used a dangerous weapon, his pickup truck, to try and kidnap Ahmad. All three men were indicted for attempted kidnapping, and Greg and Travis were indicted for carrying, brandishing, and discharging a firearm during a crime of violence. If convicted, the three men face possible sentences of life in prison. There is no parole in the federal system. The three men also had their first appearance hearing. In federal court, the press is forbidden from bringing cameras or recording devices into the courtroom. Hey, believe me, I'm all about freedom of the press, but selfishly, as a print reporter for decades, and a very competitive one at that, I never complained much about those rules. With no sound bites or audio clips, my radio and TV counterparts were less likely to cover many of the federal cases that had caught my attention. And that suited me just fine. But now, as a podcaster, change those rules. Thankfully, our colleague Christian Boone was in the U.S. Magistrate's courtroom. Here's Christian describing the scene. This is the first time we've seen the McMichaels and Roddy Bryan outside of jail. They were in the courtroom um, without attorneys. Um, all three of them have changed in physical appearance, really, since we first saw them a year ago. The McMichaels have both lost weight. Travis McMichaels lost a lot of weight. And William Bryan looks, uh, he just looks almost ashen. During the hearing, the three men asked for court-appointed attorneys. This means they'll each have two different sets of legal teams representing them, one for the state case, another for the federal. Back to Christian. Uh, it was a very quick hearing. It was over in about 10 minutes. Um, the U.S. magistrate uh, presiding read the charges. The uh, prosecution is pretty much ready to go. They said they were prepared to turn over one terabyte of discovery evidence uh, to the defense. That sounds like a lot. Yeah, they're in pretty serious legal jeopardy here. The federal charges will come after the criminal trial happens in uh, October. 
That leads us to the two-day pretrial hearing in the state's case. It began May 12th and ended the following day. Our prior episode tried to set up this hearing. Believe me, it's a big one. For the most part, it played out pretty much the way we expected. It's important to note this was the first court hearing in the Arbery case without Jesse Evans. He was lead prosecutor until he resigned from the Cobb County District Attorney's Office in April. Yet another development since our last episode. Linda Donikoski, who joined the Cobb DA's office two years ago, is now lead prosecutor. In her debut in this role, Donikoski held her own. She started out by arguing that Ahmad's so-called prior bad acts, or 404B evidence, should not be admissible. Like we said in Episode 9, such evidence is usually not allowed in a self-defense case if the defendants did not know about the victim's past behavior. Still, Travis McMichael's lawyer, Jason Sheffield, took the lead in arguing that the jury should be informed about Ahmad's past conduct. He called on a number of witnesses who dealt with Ahmad in the years leading up to the fatal shooting. Some of their statements were both chilling and disturbing. And sad. Very sad. Here is Sheffield making his initial arguments before Judge Timothy Walmsley. So what we have learned is that Mr. Arbery, starting back in 2013 and moving through 2017, 2018, and 2019, and into 2020, had a pattern of conduct and behavior, had a pattern of other acts that included theft crimes or attempted burglary crimes, or when confronted about his actions by people who appeared to have some authority, whether it be a business owner or a neighbor or the police or the Department of Corrections or even his mom, when confronted about his act that was under question, his response to that is to get angry and aggressive, physically and verbally. And so for purposes of this part of why we're offering this, we believe that this 404B evidence will speak to several issues that are inherently locked within this case that cannot be removed from the case because they are so fundamental to the issue. So what we're speaking about, Your Honor, is the very basic facts of that Mr. Arbery was in a neighborhood on February 23rd, 2020, that he did not live in, that Mr. Arbery was in a house in that neighborhood that he does not own and had been in that house on several occasions at night over the course of several months, that Mr. Arbery is running away after being seen. Jurors are going to have questions about all of this, Sheffield said. These are all the issues that need to be determined and that we believe will be in the minds of the jurors what was going on that day, why was it going on, and what was everyone's intent? What was the motivation of these people, these people being Mr. Arbery and the McMichaels? Were the actions of the the parties, Mr. Arbery and, and the McMichaels, were they reasonable? Were the McMichaels' interpretations of conduct and behavior of what they observed about Mr. Arbery, was that reasonable? Were they allowed under the law to detain Mr. Arbery? 
Why did they bring firearms? Why did they seek to arrest or perform a citizen's arrest? Why did they feel they needed to defend themselves in the process? Sheffield conceded Travis and Greg knew nothing about Ahmad's past. In this case, 404B allows us to deal with other acts that happened in the past that the McMichaels were unaware of, but that aid the jury in determining what the intent and motive of Mr. Arbery was on that day. Because his intent and his motive is something that is central to the case. And we feel the 404B evidence will help answer those questions. As expected, Donikowski was having none of it. They said that the motivation of the victim is the central issue in this case. Your Honor, they have put us on notice that this is a self-defense case. First off, in a self-defense case, you cannot start it. If you're the first aggressor, you cannot go ahead and murder somebody. You can't claim self-defense if you started it. They started this when Greg McMichael saw Ahmaud Arbery running down the street. They had no knowledge that he had been inside 220 Satilla Shores earlier, just moments earlier. They had no knowledge of that. So in order to get out of this problem they have, which is they're the first aggressors, they've got a claim they were making a citizen's arrest. As for Sheffield's comment that Ahmad had stopped at a place away from his home. And they said, a question is, well, he's a neighborhood he does not live. Last time I checked, this was the United States of America, and you could go anywhere you wanted. Well, so long as you're not trespassing, which apparently Ahmad was doing. But you get the point. He walked into a house that was open. Yes, not his, but not theirs either. Donikowski had this to say about the defense's contention of a lawful citizen's arrest. They made multiple attempts to detain Ahmed Aubrey. That's not a citizen's arrest. That's an illegal detention. It's false imprisonment. And they want to talk about Mr. Arbery's reaction to Greg McMichael and Travis McMichael. It's common sense, fight or flight. And what Mr. Ahmad Arbery did was he fled because he was under no legal obligation whatsoever to stop and talk to strangers who were trying to hit him with their pickup trucks and shoot him with their shotguns. Their baseline is that the jury's entitled for some reason to determine what was going on with the victim. Not at all, not relevant. What's going on with the victim has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that he was running down a public street in the United States of America when two people decided to get guns and try and hit him with their pickup trucks, joined by Mr. Bryan, who then actually hit him with the pickup truck. They then cornered him like a rat, according to their statements, held him, so how is his prior acts that they knew nothing about relevant to any issue in this case? Because if this is a self-defense case, it's the reasonableness of their actions. If they're the first aggressors, they have a problem. So now it's, well, was it reasonable for us to do a citizen's arrest? They weren't making a citizen's arrest, according to their own counsel. In the last episode, we summarized the 10 prior incidents the defense wants to get into evidence. 
During this hearing, we heard from several people, most of them law enforcement, who'd had those interactions with Ahmad. Sheffield's first witness was Rodney Ellis, the police chief for the Glen County School System. He was asked to recount what happened on December 3, 2013. That night, Brunswick High School was having a basketball game, and a lieutenant became alarmed when he spotted Ahmad entering the gym. One of my lieutenants observed a firearm in, his, in, in the waistband of Mr. The lieutenant challenged him at, at the door to say, you know, stop, I need to talk to you. And at that point in time, he ran out the door, ran away from the officer, refused to comply with the officer's command to stop, I need to talk to you, uh, ran out the door, um, and ran away from multiple officers there until he got to my position where I tried to apprehend him as well. Okay. The lieutenant... Ellis said, tried to put his hands on Ahmad, but he pushed them away and took flight. Ellis said he joined in the chase inside his clearly marked police car, which was an SUV. When he got to my position, one of my, my lieutenants was behind him. I radioed me and gave me a description and said, that's the guy they're after that's running by your vehicle. He was running along, I was, was advised he was potentially armed, um, and my lieutenant, who also was, was running behind me, um, had his weapon out. Um, I screamed as loud as I could, stop, 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 fearing he was still armed because that's what information that I had. I had, you know, my weapon out the window, trained on him, you know, begging him, just yelling, stop, stop, stop. And as he ran, he slowed down, he made eye contact with me, he began to pat his waistband. And when he did that, what were your thoughts? Lord, please don't let me have to shoot this man. And he, uh, the elements were certainly there to have used deadly force in that situation. Um, I was praying I would not have to. Um, he came up empty handed as he was patting his waistband. He didn't have anything in his hands. Um, the, the lighting was not very good there. But when, he's hand, when he come up with his hands, he kind of made eye contact with me again. At that point in time, he began to run again, accelerating away. So at that point in time, he went around the corner, and I continued to pursue him. Ellis said when Ahmad sped around the corner, he ran right into two of his police officers. They took him into custody at gunpoint. He didn't fight at that point in time. He, he gave up. He relented and yes, stopped. He, okay. he, did not, he did not resist at that point in time. The scary part of that for me was was reaching for the waistband. The gun was later found in front of the gym. Ahmad either dropped it or it fell out of his waistband during the chase. Ahmad would later be sentenced to five years on probation for bringing a gun onto school property and a year on probation for obstruction. But for Ellis's reluctance to use deadly force, Ahmad could have been shot way back then. Absolutely. And that happened in 2013, more than seven years before he was shot and killed in Satilla Shores. Sheffield next called Glen County Police Officer Mydell to the stand. He asked about an incident on December 1, 2017. That's when a Walmart loss prevention officer spotted Ahmad trying to steal a flat-screen television by taking it out of a side door. Mydell arrived as the loss prevention officer was talking to Ahmad and three others in the Walmart parking lot. What did you see when you arrived? Uh, just the uh, four males that uh, the loss prevention officer was following to just walk through the parking lot. Okay, and did you approach Mr. Arbery? I approached all four individuals at okay. the same time. 
Midell told all four people to sit down on the ground until backup officers arrived. Three of them complied right away. Ahmad did not. He was a little confrontational at first. He didn't want to do it. He, he didn't want to comply with sitting down. Um, but after repeated requests, I'm not sure how many times I told him to sit down, he, they finally just did it. I guess that was also when uh, backup officers started to arrive. Mydell said that while he was dealing with Ahmad, he became more confrontational and agitated. When you say agitated state, can you describe what it was that you observed that made you feel like Mr. Arby was agitated? Uh, like I said, you know, the use of profane language, the elevated tone of his voice, um, and it was the difference between him and the other three individuals who were complying that just kind of, I just knew that, you know, if something were to happen that it, would, it may have just been him and not the other three. Was there anything about his body language? Uh, just uh, the use, I'm not, not, entirely, not entirely sure. I mean, uh, I could just tell like the stance that he was taking and um, how he was, the use of his hands, how he was moving them around and in rapid succession uh, just kind of made me seem as though that he was a little more on edge than the other three. Mydell said when he asked Ahmad if he had stolen the TV, Ahmad denied it, and he continued to do so even when the loss prevention officer said he had seen him doing it. Next, it was Donikoski's turn to question Mydell. Through her line of questions, it was clear Donikoski was trying to show there was nothing exceptional about this incident. Officer Mydell, was this incident anything extraordinary or outside of the ordinary with any of the shopliftings you've ever encountered? No. No. Now, he used profanity. Was this the first time you've heard someone use profanity with you? No, ma'am. Was this the first time someone has appeared to be agitated in using their hands to talk to you? No, ma'am. At any point in time, did you pull out your firearm on Mr. Arbery? No, ma'am. Is it unusual to have to repeat your commands to people? No. Ahmad later pleaded guilty to this and was put on probation. Sheffield then called Glen County Police Officer Michael Canego to the stand. We previously took a deep dive into Canego's encounter with Ahmad on November 7, 2017 in Townsend Park. We heard their exchanges, some quite heated, courtesy of Canego's body cam recording. Here's one. Hey, I'm ID, please. Yeah, give me a second, man. Why am I f***ing with you? Yo, you want to know why I'm f***ing with you? Why? Keep your hand in your pocket. I ain't got shit on me. What the f*** you f*** with me for? While Canego was on the stand, Sheffield played the body cam footage of the exchange. It shows Ahmad growing more and more frustrated with Canego. Is there anything about him walking towards you in this way that is concerning? Uh, having your arms out to the side, uh, one thing that we have seen before in uh, <laughs> things like modern media and uh, just TV and what we learn through everyday lives is sometimes that could be construed as challenging body language. Do you consider 
the possibility that things may escalate in ways that could become dangerous? Is that at all in your thought process? Yes. When it was Donikowski's turn, she once again started right away asking if Canago found the exchange atypical. And you've been on the job for a year and a half? Yes. Was this the first time somebody had used profanity with you? That was the first time that somebody had acted that way with me, yes. Okay. That, that was I my, can remember. That was my question. Is that the first time someone had used profanity with you? I believe so, yes. A year and a half as a patrol officer and no one had used profanity with you? De-escalation is a forte of mine. De-escalation is his forte? Hmm. Of course, when Canego first saw that Ahmad was safe in his car and just listening to music, he could have left right then. Instead, their confrontation escalated to the point where a fellow officer was called in, and he tried to tase the unarmed Ahmad. Thankfully for Ahmad, the taser malfunctioned. Sergeant Jerry Jones of the Burke County Sheriff's Office was next up. Sheffield asked about a trespass notice warning Jones and another officer served Ahmad on August 21, 2018. A deputy, Tyrone Brem, had called dispatch. He reported that a suspicious person, who turned out to be Ahmad, was outside his house looking into car windows while his wife was home alone. And what was it that you were made aware of was the issue with Deputy Brim and his property? Uh, Deputy Brim had advised us that Mr. Arbery had trespassed on his property and was looking in his vehicles and uh, glancing in his backyard uh, and in the front yard while his wife was at home. Uh, Deputy Brim was not home at that, at that initial time that Mr. Arbery was there. Uh, his wife had called him on cell phone, advising that there was a suspicious person in the yard. Uh, Deputy Brim, who was off duty, came home. When Deputy Brim went home and confronted Ahmad, he became agitated, Jones said. Jones also said that Ahmad didn't explain why he was in the deputy's backyard. Deputy Brim did not attempt to detain him. Uh, he, he waited for our arrival. As we started to roll up, Mr. Arbery began walking away hurriedly. Jones said he and the other officer identified themselves and tried to talk to Ahmad. However, Ahmad wasn't really eager to talk to them. We asked him to stop to talk to us, to let us know what was going on, uh, to make sure that he wasn't being um, harassed by someone or that something wasn't being done that shouldn't have been. Uh, in other words, he was just an innocent bystander just walking down the street and somebody tried to harass him or whatnot. Um, but he, he refused to talk to us. He just kept walking, um, walking away as fast as he could. Sheffield asked Jones to describe how he was speaking to Ahmad. We believe in being polite initially, unless you prove that we need to take it up a little bit. Uh, what does that mean to take it up a little bit? Well, I don't, I don't. I don't command you to do things initially. I ask you. And then if you fail to do what I ask, then we command. I'm going to tell you I want you to do this, that, or the other if I believe something's taking place. At one point, Jones did have to take it up a bit, he said. We saw this after Sheffield began playing the video and audio recording from Jones's body cam. He and his fellow deputy had gone to Ahmad's grandmother's house nearby. First, we only see Ahmad, but then he goes inside and gets his grandmother. She comes out and stands on her doorstep inside the porch. Ahmad is standing off to the side, eating an ice cream cone. 
Sheffield plays some of the recording and then pauses it to ask Jones questions about what's going on. Hey man, what's the attitude? Hey, back it down. Back it down. Go get your grandma in a minute. Why are you telling him to watch his attitude and back it down? Because it came agitated more so, and he was, he was not being rational. Um, so I felt that it would be better suited to have his grandmother come out because she could decide, understand what we're saying. She could probably also calm him down. After Maud's grandmother comes outside, the deputy explains to her why this is important. Because understand, some of those folks over there take that real serious. Some of those people over there take that real serious. And the last thing we need is them getting shot, being in somebody's yard, either on purpose or by accident. Okay. Why are you saying that to him? A lot of the neighbors in that area, they all possess weapons. And some of them have, have been burglarized victims of various types of theft so they usually will come out with a gun and in the case of Ms. Arbery if he walked in the wrong yard after somebody has been victimized he could have become a victim at that moment. Sheffield then asked Jones if he thought Ahmad was behaving in a rational way. Uh, but based off of training and experience I had determined that he was not possibly mentally capable of, of understanding what we're trying to, to do, and that he could, at some point, uh, become even more hostile at that, at that time. He's just running off of the mouth. Words, words don't hurt me. Right. Um, his, his body language is going to tell me something different, but it just appeared to me that it was someone that was not necessarily, I don't really want to go into saying that it's uh, mentally not stable, but he mentally just was not there at the moment. Ocean breeze, tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. There was another incident two months later on October 23rd, 2018. It happened in Burke County, not far from where Ahmad's grandmother lived. Someone had called 911 after seeing Ahmad and two others in an abandoned house. Sheriff's Deputy Yarborough was the first to arrive at the scene. Here he is on the witness stand. I walked to the rear of the trailer. There's an open door. I could hear voices. And what, what did you hear in terms of voices? I heard people laughing and cutting up. Okay. What did you do? I also detected the, or smelled the odor of marijuana emitting from the trail. Okay. Made entry through the rear, of the rear door. I saw one subject turn and look at me. I asked, or I advised, let me see their hands. Um, from there, they took flight out the front door. Okay, let me stop you. Was that such sus- subject, Mr. Aubrey? <clears throat> yes, sir. Yarbrough said he yelled out, stop, police. But Ahmad and the two others, who were both juveniles, ran away. One officer caught up with one of the juveniles, and another detained Ahmad and the other juvenile. Ahmad was not all that compliant, Yarborough said. Uh, it took uh, multiple commands for them to get down on the ground, uh, face down, so we could place handcuffs on them. I could hear that he was uh, telling Duffy Clark not to touch him multiple times. Uh, he's getting irate. 
Yarbrough also said Ahmad denied being in the abandoned house in the first place. He told police he was coming from a gas station a couple miles away. Was he in fact the one running? Yes. So was his statement to you the truth or a lie? It was false. False. Ahmad later pleaded guilty to one count of misdemeanor obstruction, Yarbrough said. Finally, there was Crystal Wilson. She's the assistant manager of the Love's Travel Center in Brunswick on Highway 17. Here she is when asked if she knew Ahmad Arbery. He was a regular shoplifter in our store. Okay. When you say he was a regular shoplifter, how often would you say that he shoplifted? Um, not really sure. After the first um, few times I watched him, so I know there were about eight instances that we've caught him. Wilson said Ahmad did this from 2018 up until shortly before he was killed in February 2020. He pretty much just came in, um, grabbed food, and then usually at that point I noticed him and he would run out the door. Okay. I pretty much just yelled at him to stop and then yelled at him that he wasn't allowed in the store anymore. Okay. Wilson said she called police only once because all the other occasions he was gone long before police would arrive. She testified that she finally identified Ahmad after seeing his photo in the news when he was shot and killed. The time she did call police was just a few weeks before that. She said Ahmad had come inside the store, grabbed some potato chips, and bolted. Wilson said at the time she was walking around outside. My cashier called me on the radio and um, told me what happened. And at that same instance, he had come around the side of the building I was on. Um, I yelled at him to stop. Um, one of my employees happened to be pulling up and saw what was going on and just immediately had started chasing him. And that's the instance that I did call the police because I was worried for both, both of them. Why were you worried? Um, I obviously did not want my cashier getting hurt or Mr. Arbery getting hurt. I didn't know if it was going to lead to an altercation. Uh, Wilson said no altercation occurred. After hearing all the testimony, Judge Walmsley said he wanted both sides to file legal briefs on the issue. So we expect him to decide sometime this summer. And like we've said, because Travis Gregg and Roddy knew nothing about these prior incidents, the defense will be hard-pressed to convince Walmsley to allow such testimony. Unless, of course, the prosecution somehow opens the door to it during the trial. Exactly. Okay. Let's move on to the arguments as to whether Ahmad's mental health issues are relevant. We heard arguments about this on both days of the hearing, and, like the 404B evidence, we were left with no resolution. Lead Prosecutor Donikowski had filed the motion to prohibit the testimony, so she went first. In this case, of course, Ahmed, uh, Ahmad Arbi was not known to any of the defendants, so therefore, it didn't inform and it didn't change their perception of him. As we know, when you know somebody and you've seen them do things or had them done to you violent acts, it changes the way you respond to that person. But when people are complete and utter strangers and they're coming up to you or you're coming up to them, you have no preconceived notion and or knowledge about any prior history, prior history of anything, including prior violent acts or prior mental health issues, which is what we have here. Donikowski told Walmsley the defense is going to contend that Ahmad charged and attacked Travis not to defend himself, but because that's what he wanted to do. 
We know this is a self-defense case. They've told us that. They then go on to assert that the jury will be instructed that their assessment turns on the reasonable person standard, which is correct. You cannot kill somebody and claim, oh, I was afraid, unless it's reasonable. It has to be the fear of a reasonable person. Ahmed Arbery's mental health status is not an issue in this case. They claim it is by saying, including the way that Ahmad Arbery would have appeared as he closed in on Greg and Travis. This, this, this video is this fast. You can't even say 1001 before the first gunshot goes off. So to say that this is relevant about how Ahmad Arbery appeared to them, so therefore his mental health comes in, it fails on its face with it's this. It's clearly character evidence. It's clearly an effort to go ahead and say, Mr. Arbery wasn't right, he had some mental health issues, and therefore it's his fault about what happened. He didn't respond correctly or appropriately to the defendants, and therefore it's his fault they had to kill him. And that, of course, is very offensive. Sheffield agreed. Coming forward to say that Ahmad Arbery is at fault, that would be very offensive. Here is how Sheffield says it's relevant. The story of the case being that we have an innocent jogger who was followed and brutally attacked with, with no reason whatsoever. And so the state is telling the story by interpreting what was going on in Mr. Arbery's head, what his intentions were that day to jog, to enjoy a neighborhood nearby, to simply stop in a house, and then to run away fearful of people that he didn't know who had nothing more in their heart than to maliciously just end his life. And because that's the narrative the state is talking about, we really fundamentally are talking about relevance, Judge. What we're talking about is what is the inherent truth of what was happening in the lives of these people at the time this conflict happened. Sheffield called his first witness, Christy Anderson. She's a nurse who worked at Gateway Behavioral Health in 2018. She made the initial diagnosis that Ahmad suffered from schizoaffective disorder. She explained how she arrived at that conclusion. The behavioral health assessment, so you just read the questions off the, the assessment itself and just document their answers. Okay. And once they give you their answers and once you get the information from them, what do you do next with that information? As they're talking, I'm typing it into the computer. Anderson said once she's finished, her work can be reviewed by a nurse practitioner or doctor. When Sheffield moved to introduce Ahmad's records from Gateway into evidence, Donikoski asked Walmsley to sign a protective order so they wouldn't be made public. And then Walmsley expressed concerns about HIPAA, the 1996 law designed to keep a person's medical records private. On the stand, Anderson expressed her own concern. I was just wondering how this would affect my nursing license. And Donikoski objected on different grounds. The state does not dispute that gateway on December 14th of 2018 spent two hours from 8.30 in the morning to 10.30 in the morning doing this assessment and that a registered nurse came up with a diagnosis at that time and that another nurse, who I believe is not here, a Ms. Ruby Pontello, 
then spent a half an hour with Mr. Arbery in the afternoon, and then prescribed him medication. And that is the extent of this diagnosis. So while we don't dispute that this diagnosis took place, we are very concerned about the quality of the diagnosis. This was not ongoing treatment. It was a one-time situation. Mr. Arbery never returned. Then what would be more important for me is then um, what that diagnosis means in 2020. The question here is, why would this diagnosis be relevant to any issue in this case? So that leads us back to what are the issues in this case? And the issues in this case are citizen's arrest and self-defense. Therefore, Mr. Ahmad Arbery's mental health is not relevant on any issue at all in dispute in this case because it sheds absolutely no light on any issue in this case. How is his mental health? He could have been a Rhodes Scholar, he could have been fucking his arms like a chicken running down the street. His mental health is absolutely relevant to the reasonableness of their actions. Sheffield said all of this will become far more relevant when he calls his next witness. She's a forensic psychiatrist who's reviewed not only the gateway records, but has watched the body cam footage by police officers who interacted with Ahmad. Wamsley said he wasn't ready for that just yet. I got a lot of questions about this because this to me is a rather unique way of approaching justification and self-defense, particularly when you start talking about the victim state line at the time. So all that said, I'm going to stop what we are. Your co-counsel wants to stop you. And Walmsley expressed these concerns. First question is relevance, whether or not under these circumstances this uh, mental health diagnosis would be relevant to the court. or not relevant, uh, would be admissible in the case. Um, and I am trying to avoid getting into the specific medical records. Mr. Harvey, it sounds to me that that's exactly where you feel that the court has to go in order to make that decision. And what I'm working through is whether or not that's the case or not. I have, I mean, if the court determined that it's, it's relevant, then, you know, the, the records going to be coming in, but if not, they are significant. And the moment they become a record in this case, uh, if the court determines that they're not relevant, the way that this case has gone, they will be everywhere. They're part of the court's record, which means anybody can come in and look at the court's record. And I have a real problem with simply allowing that. At the end of the hearing's first day, Walmsley tells both sides to think about it overnight. They'll revisit the issue tomorrow, he says. When court reconvened, Walmsley said he'd decided how to proceed. He was going to bifurcate it, divide it into two parts. First, he wants to decide whether all these records and evidence should come in in the first place. If so, he said he'll hold another hearing in the future going over all the details. Once again, he asked both sides to file legal briefs on the issue to help him decide the first threshold. Wamsley then let the attorneys have the last word. By the way, we need to make note that, once again, Wamsley was not speaking into his microphone. We hope this is not an ongoing thing. Donikowski started off by questioning whether Ahmad actually signed a waiver that allows his mental health records to become public, and she accused the defense of cherry-picking certain incidents. These sources are Mr. Arbery's worst days of his life. Absolutely, the worst days of his life when he is involved in law enforcement. This is not every day of his life. And to have 
their doctor come in and go, well, I looked at all this stuff and it supports a conclusion based on a two hour form that got filled out as a diagnosis, the state contends that's a raggedy patchwork of sources that their doctor had to work with because their doctor never ever met Mr. Arbery and never talked to him on his best day. Naturally, Sheffield disagreed. It's not about the credibility of Ahmaud Arbery. And it is okay to recognize and celebrate who Ahmaud Arbery was in 2012 when he graduated high school, but it is reckless to disregard the mental health illness that plagued him for eight years leading up to this moment in February of February 23rd, 2020. While there are anecdotal accounts that the state has chosen to get into the mind of Ahmaud Arbery suddenly and say, well, these are just his bad days. These are just his days over the course of three years, which shows a very sad decline based on mental illness. And because he has had this decline in the presence of cameras and other people, then it's been captured. And then of course we should use it to analyze whether it fits within this idea of mental illness and relevance. This evidence is of paramount importance to the defense. So the defense was not allowed to call its expert witness, the forensic psychiatrist who had reviewed the records and watched the body cam footage. It made me wonder, if the defense can't get those prior bad acts in as 404B evidence, they may try to get some of it in through their forensic psychiatrist, if she's ultimately allowed to testify. We'll see. And we'll let you know how Wamsley rules on these important and consequential issues. When the hearing finally adjourned, Ahmad's mom, Wanda Jones, then appeared with the family lawyer, Lee Merritt. Um, I think that we're moving closer to, to justice for Ahmad. Um, I think that we're moving in the right direction. I'm still screaming justice for Ahmad, and I'm, I'm very, very confident that we will get justice for Ahmad. I just want this to be all over so Ahmad can, can continue to, to, um, to rest in peace. Um, regardless of what testimonies that, that we all heard, um, Ahmad was our baby son. Ahmad wasn't just a jogger. He was, he was a son. He was a brother. He was a grandson. Ahmad was a person. Ahmad was, he went out for a day of, uh, like a run, and he never returned home. I mean, Ahmad was loved. Before we sign off, I want to give you an update on the Justin Ross Harris hot car case from season two. You'll remember that Harris was convicted in 2016 of murder for leaving his 22-month-old son Cooper in his car to die in the sweltering heat. Well, more than four years later, Judge Mary Staley Clark has denied Harris's motion for a new trial. This was expected because to grant a new trial, Clark herself would have had to admit she made grave errors during the sensational trial. The denial was spelled out in a 70-page order that Clark herself did not write. The order, it turns out, was prepared by Donikoski, and Clark signed it. You might be surprised, but this happens a lot. But when judges have such an important case before them, I think they should write their own order. Isn't this why they're judges? Didn't they sign up for this? They shouldn't simply assign the job they were elected to do to one of the parties in the case. That's long been a pet peeve of mine. 
Regardless, this sets up the next step in the Harris case, his upcoming appeal before the Georgia Supreme Court. I reckon it will be heard sometime next year. Thanks so much for listening to Breakdown. We'll be back as soon as we can for the next developments in the Ahmad Arbery case. Please be safe and take care. Until next time, I'm Bill Rankin. You've been listening to Breakdown, hosted by Bill Rankin, produced by Asia Simone Burns and Bill Rankin, edited by Jennifer Brett, music by Bo Emerson and Billy Ewan, sound design by Asia Simone Burns. Special thanks to Kevin Riley, Sean McIntosh, Leroy Chapman, and Pete Corson. Please rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite download app. We also invite you to listen to the previous seven seasons of Breakdown. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC.